I can't raise prices on people that can't afford the food already. Coming up on Carolina Connection, inflation has started to fall, but local businesses are still feeling the pinch of higher prices. Good morning. I'm Lorelai Sykes. And I'm Sophie Mallinson. Also this morning, the Lunar New Year ushers in celebrations and community across campus. A Genius Grant recipient leaves students starstruck, birdwatching hobbyists play a crucial role in conservation efforts, and a disputed local photography exhibit moves to the National Civil Rights Museum. It's like the equivalence of going to the doctor. The first thing that you're going to talk about is like the source of the pain, right? And that's kind of like what Tar Healing was. It was really a vessel for reckoning that leads to healing. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to our first program of the new year. Let's start by talking about the pandemic. Yes, still. At UNC, classes have operated under optional mask policies for almost a year. But with the arrival of the new semester and the bivalent COVID booster, students are asking how much they should still be masking. Kyle Turek reports. At the beginning of every semester, I always am kind of worried there's going to be like another little spike. So even this semester, I'm kind of masking just to see um, where everything's at. While UNC's campus has been mask optional for almost a year now, sophomore Jack Wilson has continued wearing his mask in class and around campus. He is masked in the student union as he speaks with me. I've also noticed that my classes, like I'll be one of the only people in my classes masking. I feel like slowly people are just getting more and more tired of it, um, regardless of where cases are at. But for me, like the mask doesn't really inhibit how I feel like I'm able to breathe. So if I have the option to mask and I have any concerns about COVID, I kind of just find myself deferring to masking rather than not masking. One of Wilson's main concerns is making sure his classmates are safe. I never know like who's around me or who could be immunocompromised or like is still worried about the possibility that they could get COVID and get really sick from it. Several UNC students still choose to wear their masks. I saw two groups of students studying with masks on at the union before interviewing with Wilson. The CDC recommends masking in indoor settings where many people are around. However, UNC remains mask optional. COVID has not gone away though and continues to impact hundreds of Americans each day. So we have Drs. Amir Barzan and David Weber with us again today, today to let us know where things are as we enter the fourth year of the pandemic and to answer questions. Um, UNC Secretary of the Faculty, Jill Moore, opened the meeting of the Faculty Council last Friday with an update regarding COVID trends nationwide. Dr. Weber is an advisor to the World Health Organization on COVID. He joined the meeting on Zoom. Over the last uh, couple of weeks, test positivity, hospitalizations are down. Deaths always lag behind hospitalizations. I don't want to minimize the impact of COVID. We're losing a little over 500 people a day. After the meeting, Dr. Weber broke down how students can best protect themselves at this point in the pandemic. Most of the people in the hospital now, the most are older, 65, but have not had the bivalent booster. So students re represent a relative relatively lower risk. But keep in mind, we're losing over 500 people a day. We lose approximately 100 people a day to 
uh, gun violence and 100 people a day to car crashes. So we're losing two and a half times that number just to COVID. He says the best measure students can take to protect themselves is getting the new bivalent booster. The new booster reduces the chances of infection as well as the effects of long COVID, such as brain fog. It's very easy. You can get it at uh, Campus Health. You can get it at any of our hospital clinics. There's no shortage, and I'm sure you could get an appointment within 24 hours if you wanted it. In terms of masking, Dr. Weber says it's mostly up to you based on your health circumstances. Back at the union, Wilson reflects on another difficulty, the reduced availability of testing on campus. There's no longer the whole testing site in the union where it used to be really easy. So it kind of sucks because if you are exposed, then there's not really any clear way to know if you have it or not, if you don't have at-home tests, which can also get really expensive nowadays. Students looking to get tested can schedule an appointment with Campus Health or do walk-in testing weekdays from 12 to 4. The previous union testing site offered students greater flexibility with longer hours and accessibility on main campus. In Chapel Hill, I'm Kyle Turek. One consequence of the pandemic is inflation. And as the cost of food staples remains high, local small businesses are pivoting to keep their prices affordable. Hannah Noel has the story. The cost of food nationally is up about 10% from this time last year, according to the Consumer Price Index. These inflated prices are changing the way people shop for food staples, and local businesses are trying to stay afloat while also keeping customers happy. Tova Bohm, owner of Short Winter Soups, is one owner affected by the rising cost of ingredients. She sets up shop each Saturday at the Carborough Farmer's Market, where she sells a variety of soups. Bohm says that despite their struggles, farmers and vendors have been able to keep prices fairly stable for customers. Growers who sell at the farmer's market, their prices have not, by and large, increased. This cannot be said, though, for staples at grocery stores, such as eggs, butter, and milk, which have increased significantly over the last year. A lot of folks are seeing the farmer's market as a great option. But their effort does not come without sacrifice, as keeping prices down can be detrimental to farmers selling their products directly. I do think that growers should probably be charging more because their input costs are more than they were five years ago. Another person navigating price increases is Abraham Palmer, owner of Box Turtle Bakery, a home-based bakery and weekly vendor at Carborough Farmer's Market. This is um, locally grown spelt from local farm, and it's got... Uh, well, he's also had to adapt in many ways, like sourcing ingredients from new sellers to keep his baked goods less expensive. The responses from the market and the customers have him largely optimistic. Overall, I feel like the area and the market has been pretty supportive of passing on price increases. Yet despite this, Palmer says he does not want to get too comfortable. I don't know, it feels like it's mostly holding together, but... If everything doubles again, then things would really fall apart. Also hoping to look on the bright side, Bohm says that she feels that this is changing the way many people view shopping at farmer's markets, shifting from inaccessible to the often more affordable option. I think in the past there's been kind of a mindset for some folks where the farmer's market is very expensive, and I think that's being flipped right now. Now, how is this affecting owners of local brick-and-mortar businesses? Jamie Sanchez, co-owner of Epilogue Books, Chocolate and Brews on Franklin Street, tells me it hasn't been easy. And their strategy? Being inventive to make sure that we can survive. They make all of their baked goods in-house, and ingredients have been getting pricier and pricier for them. 
I think, what was it, 30, 40% rise in prices in eggs, the rise of costs for milk, etc. And while they've also needed to make adjustments as business owners. We have to get creative about how we can create that experience that Epilogue has for the customer, keeping that magic through our food. For Epilogue, getting creative means using alternative methods of getting ingredients, like Instacart grocery delivery. But mostly, it means taking rising costs onto themselves over raising costs on their customers. I can't raise prices on people that can't afford the food already. But Sanchez says, for the people, it's all worth it. We wouldn't be here if our mission wasn't to be there for the community. As businesses work to keep prices as low as possible, they hope that the community uses this opportunity to check out local growers, vendors, and shops, trying local products, often finding less expensive options than grocery stores, and helping support local businesses in the process. What's the people? It's the community. In Chapel Hill, I'm Hannah Noel. Durham photographer Cornell Watson made national headlines last year for his exhibit, Tarred Healing, which focuses on the black history and community in Chapel Hill. Days before the photo series was set to open at the UNC Sonia Haynes Stone Center, the center told Watson it would no longer move forward with the exhibit due to disagreements over content. University leadership said some of the images detracted from the message of reverence for the black community that they hoped the exhibition would convey. Now, nearly a year since the Stone Center canceled the showing, Tarred Healing is newly on display at the National Civil Rights Museum. Here to talk more with us about Tarred Healing and its new home is Cornell Watson. Hi, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So it's been almost a year now since Tarred Healing was set to display in the Stone Center. They unexpectedly canceled it all of a sudden. Can you take us back to when they canceled it? Like what you were feeling because they came to you asking for this and then all of a sudden they said no. It wasn't really unexpected that there was like, um, you know, there was tension, right? Yeah, it felt really intense for like the next few weeks because a lot of this was new for me. Like I never had to deal with, you know, an establishment, an institution making a media statement about me. But the important thing about Tarte Healing was that it was connected to the community. Like I had always been connected to the black community of Chapel Hill. And so when everything started to happen, like they rallied behind Tarte Healing. In your artist statement for Tarte Healing, you categorized it as something to be for like self-healing. And how has that shifted with all the publicity? Is it still self-healing just for you? Or like, how have your feelings towards that changed? Yes, I I still feel that way. Um, And when I said that, like, I wasn't, I wasn't specifically talking about self-healing for me. Like, that's a byproduct of this. But I was talking about, like, self-healing for the community, like, especially for the black community of Chapel Hill and for the univer- the black community of the university. Like, this was self-healing. Like, I feel like um, anytime you're able to have a, um, a platform, a space to talk about pain, and to talk about, you know, where, um, you know, it's like the it's like the equivalence of like going to the doctor, right? And you break your leg. Um, like the first thing that you're going to talk about is like the source of the pain, right? So you have to reckon with that before we can like figure out like, well, what long-term things can we do to actually heal that leg? And that's kind of like what tar healing was, right? It was, um, it was a it was really a vessel for reckoning that 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 leads to 
healing. So now that this like localized exhibit, it's tarred healing, it's focused on tar heels and the black community in like the greater Chapel Hill and Carborough area. Now that it's going to a national level, do you think it's just like amplifying that message or the message changes? I think it's both. I think that the message is amplified. The the healing component of it is being amplified. I think what happened now that Tar Healing is like on this like like national stage is that it's not specifically about Chapel Hill anymore or the black students at the university. It's really about like lots of black communities across the country that look and feel like the Chapel Hill community because they all experience very similar things, right? Um, and so like all these like different components of tarred healing, I feel like black people can see themselves in the story no matter whether they are from Chapel Hill or not. And I feel like even non-black people can relate to the story whether they're from Chapel Hill or not because it all, it, it affects us all, right? And every, you know, especially people with privilege have the power to help tear down a lot of the institutions of oppression that are being highlighted in the photo story so that it um, can stop this cycle of harm during this healing process, right? Well, we really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was photographer Cornell Watson. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Sophie Mallinson. And I'm Lorelai Sykes. Last Sunday, people all over the world rang in the Lunar New Year. It's a time to celebrate, be with family, and make delicious food. At UNC, the Chinese Undergraduate Student Association hopes the New Year can serve another purpose, fostering a sense of community between Asian Americans and international Chinese students. Annie LeBaron has more. In front of Memorial Hall, yellow dragons dance in a circle to the rhythm of bright red drums. Local groups are performing traditional dances to usher in good luck for the new year. Artistic director for the Carolina Performing Arts, Allison Friedman, organized this pre-show for the Hong Kong Ballet performance last Saturday. The Lunar New Year is the most important celebration in the entire calendar year. It's bigger than Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter combined. It's a time of celebrating the end of winter, the beginning of spring. It's about families coming together. This is an important celebration across the Asian diaspora, not just China. In Chapel Hill, the president of the Chinese Undergraduate Association, Benjamin Huan, says that in Chapel Hill, the Asian American and Chinese populations rarely integrate. You know, I think you can always say like, oh, like both people are Chinese, so of course they're similar. But I think there's so many, there's such, there's so many diversity within the Asian American definition, even within like a Chinese. There's some people from different backgrounds who are from different communities. And then you take into account the international student body who have their own diversity in terms of where they're from, how they grew up. The Chinese Undergraduate Student Association hosts events in which all Asian Americans can collaborate and get to know one another. The goal is not to force them into unification, but to provide a cultural experience on campus. I think everyone has something to share. <laughs> and I think diversity creates 
better communities and more conversations that need to be made. And I think there's also, I think also a shame if people are tunnel, tunnel dug us down into one community. Tonight, the organization will be hosting its annual Chinese New Year banquet. The organization invites all students to join in for a fun night of food, performances, and even a fashion show. Huan sees this as an opportunity for Asian Americans and international Chinese to share a memorable experience. I guess what I want people to feel like is that they can, that they can meet people and they can have fun with each other and not necessarily be like friends with each other, but at least feeling comfortable with each other and knowing that each other exists and being appreciative of what they can bring. This is a step towards minimizing the divide between these two groups. According to Huan, this year's banquet will be bigger and better than ever before. In Chapel Hill, I'm Annie LeBaron. Library science schools aren't typically the place you find celebrities, but Tressie McMillan Cottom is a leading academic with a little bit of star power. She's an associate professor at UNC's School of Information and Library Science and a senior faculty researcher at the Center for Information, Technology, and Public Life. Denise Stroud spent some time with her. As I arrived to interview UNC professor Tressie McMillan Cottom at UNC's School of Information and Library Science, a young student beats me to her. He gushes with praise for her most recent book and seems to be angling for an autograph. She's all grace and generosity at this interruption. Clearly, she has done this before. McMillan Cottom has won a MacArthur Genius Grant, been featured on NPR, and was a repeat guest on The Daily Show, where host Trevor Noah called her a brilliant, brilliant woman. Though she could teach at just about any top institution, she says she wants to be at a public university because of the greater diversity. It just makes some things easier. I don't have to do as much work in a diverse classroom to prove why some subjects matter. Professor McMillan Cottom says all the attention she receives allows her to help those who get less of the limelight. It matters when I weigh in on somebody's tenure denial publicly, and I always want to be able to be that person for someone because there wouldn't have been that person for me. Or it matters when I highlight the scholarship of um, someone that is not at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Duke. But what about the students she teaches at Sills? What's it like for them? Sills graduate student Ikra Javit shares her thoughts. So far, I love it. I love her, but I mean, she has a lot of fans, so I guess I'll just say I'm another one of them. Like, I don't think anything makes me different there. But I was really, really excited about taking this class. Though Javit promised herself to never take an inconvenient evening class again, she knew she had to sign up for Macmillan Cottom's course, the only one taught by the professor this semester. Javit had first come across her professor's work outside of academia. I knew that she's been on The Daily Show. I watched the clip, and I like, watched it again last week, too. I just feel so cool. I'm like, oh, my God, I have class with her. And as if all those shout-outs weren't enough, she's been invited as both a guest and a guest interviewer for the popular New York Times podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, where he describes her in glowing terms. She's just one of those people who you can ask her any question, any question at all, and you just get a sparklingly interesting answer. Klein then highlighted a recurring theme from Professor McMillan Cottom's work. 
there's also one idea that, that thrums the core of a lot of this, and that is the way status structures and reinforces the hierarchies of American life, of, of who gets listened to and who gets seen and, and why. As her Tuesday evening class begins, the students amble in, arranging themselves in the tidy rows of desks. The clock strikes the signal to start. So McMillan Cotton rises from her chair and takes the stage at the front of the classroom. Her students watch with rapt attention. Secondary tier of the information economy. Um, and I was saving it, saving it, and I ended up saving it too long <laughs> because the whole point of... As for what's next for McMillan Cotton, she's working on her next book, and her fans can hardly wait. In Chapel Hill, I'm Denise Stroud. Now heading down to South Campus in the Dean Dome, let's talk basketball. UNC's basketball team is coming off a high after recent wins against NC State and Syracuse. Here's Carolina Connections' Christian Phillips with sports. Hey, Christian. Thanks so much for coming on today. Well, thank you so much for having me. So this was a pretty good week for UNC basketball overall. I mean, UNC beat NC State 80-69 to on the 21st. And let's talk about Armando Baycott. Yeah, well, it was a huge week for Armando Baycott. Uh, he now holds the UNC record for rebounds at 1,221, places him right above former UNC star Tyler Hansborough's previous record at 1,219. Uh, he actually also just broke the record for career double-doubles. Uh, he overtook Billy Cunningham at 61. And UNC also beat Syracuse on Tuesday the 24th, 72-68, uh, and Pete Nance led the scoring with 21 points. To no one's surprise, Armando Baycott was a rebound leader in this game. With a current record of 15-6 and six for the team, the season's looking pretty good so far. What would you say the rest of the season is going to look like for UNC? Well, it's going to be tough. They have a lot of huge games left on the schedule. But let's focus on the next game they're going to be playing, which is going to be on February 1st at 7 p.m. They're playing Pittsburgh. And you may recall the last time they played, they only lost by two points. So a great chance at redemption for the team. And you can actually listen to that live on air at 97.9 The Hill. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today, Christian. Well, thank you so much for having me. The 120-year-old arbor on UNC's campus has been torn down. The landmark is undergoing renovations and will be rebuilt. But while the iconic structure may be missing, there's still plenty to see this winter in Coker Arboretum. Trees, birds, and even some blooms. Savannah Gunter has more. Foot and bike traffic has returned to the Coker Arbor walkway after it was removed this fall. It's the 120th anniversary of the Arbor, a wooden structure that supports hanging vines, and the North Carolina Botanical Garden aims to create a more sustainable structure while refreshing the original natural materials. Dan Stern, the garden's director of horticulture, says right now the project is a natural blank canvas. We're just closing up on what we call kind of conceptual design and getting into the brass tacks about how far apart are the columns going to be and are we going to have wood here, are we going to use metal and kind of looking at what those aesthetic choices mean as well as what the cost implications are going to be. Stern says the project centers on sustainability and accessibility. The new arbor will feature the same vine populations and historic black locust wood while adding modern materials for longevity and a sloped walkway instead of stairs. We're doing this renovation about 25 years after the last one, and I'd like to think this renovation will last us more like 50. While planning is underway for the new arbor, the spot parallel to Cameron Street remains full of life. 
Actually, there's a lot of stuff that's popping up right now. I wish that I could sort of share with the listeners here the beauty of the cherry trees that are in flower right now. We have daffodils that are coming up by the score. Despite the cold, there are plenty of plants and people around. The Coker Nuts, a group of NCBG volunteers, meet every Tuesday morning to maintain the Arboretum's flora. Right now we're uh, cutting down plants, uh, just cleaning things up, getting ready for spring growth. We don't cut everything because we want to leave some stuff high for uh, bird habitat. Volunteer Marty Schweitzer says the group's sense of community is warming even in winter weather. Jeffrey Neal, assistant arboretum curator, adds that it's important to spend time outside in all seasons. Working outdoors and working in gardens uh, teaches you to think seasonally, yearly. Uh, I don't think about what's happening an hour from now. I think about what's going to be happening here 30 years from now. Neal says without UNC students and community members volunteering during the winter, the Arboretum would not be able to flourish in the spring. I actually have one of our former interns uh, who came back to volunteer today because she enjoys it so much. So that should tell you something. She's willing to be here in 30 degree weather. UNC sophomore Ella Howie says natural spaces on campus are vital, especially now. I love that it's like a wild space on campus because you really don't get this anywhere else, walking along brick paths. Stern says taking care of our green spaces this time of year is important, both for the plants and for us as individuals. The campus community has really got some great access to green spaces that I think like rejuvenate us on a day-to-day basis, but I also think that um, when they start um, playing a key role in our day-to-day lives, we become better stewards of, you know, natural areas and green spaces, um, maybe more broadly. As the community awaits spring and the new Coker Arbor, it's important to keep in contact with the roots under us right now. In Chapel Hill, I'm Savannah Gunter. Finally this week, another way people can get outdoors. Every December and January, people across the world participate in a one-day event known as the Christmas Bird Count, sponsored by the National Audubon Society. For some participants in the decades-old tradition, bird watching is more than just a hobby. Brianna Atkinson accompanied a local group counting birds on New Year's Day. While many people spend the first morning of the year sleeping off their New Year's toast, Tom Driscoll wakes up with the birds. Here's the little bird. Stop, stop, stop. Psh. As he stands on a rocky road near Pittsburgh with his binoculars pointed up at the sky, he mimics a predator sound. He says the sound attracts more birds. Birds are funny. Instead of flying away when they hear a predator call, they want to see what kind of predator is. Pishing sometimes allows you to see what birds are nearby. Just like that isn't any ordinary bird call. This isn't any ordinary day of bird watching. More than 50 people woke up early to participate in the Jordan Lake Christmas bird count, one of many counts worldwide. It used to be people went out and shot birds at Christmas just to do it. They didn't even always eat them. And so some smarter people started the Audubon Society and said, we need to quit shooting birds indiscriminately and we need to start counting birds. On count day, the birders split into small groups, each responsible for a different area to search. So there's some more bluebirds up there and there's some more robins. They cover part of it by car and the other on foot. Oh, oh, there's a hawk flying low, 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 low. Oh, it might be an owl. 
Whenever they see or hear a bird, they mark it on a species chart. In Driscoll's group, Laura Lips is in charge of keeping track. Are you sure that's not a shrike? Where are you looking? On the, on the stump to the left of the blackbirds that just flew. Oh. Am I crazy? It was indeed a loggerhead shrike, a bird so rare that Lips had to use a special section of the species chart to record it. Laura! <laughs> a decades ago, this bird wasn't so rare. It used to be abundant in North Carolina, but like many other open field species, it's declined over the years. They're really hurting. Norman Budnance is the compiler of the Jordan Lake count data and has been participating in bird counts for 60 years. Farming practices have changed. Encroachment by housing developments have made those areas not as big as they used to be, and a lot of those birds need a lot of space. Budnance says shifting trends like this are why Christmas bird counts are so important. The data collected from them is used nationally. It shows how populations are declining and tells conservationists which birds need help. In the last 50 years, something like a third of the birds of North America have disappeared. Well, the way we know that is because of all of these Christmas bird counts and spring bird counts and other things like this. Okay? Did anybody see any Canada geese? Yes. Wood ducks? While spotting rare species is exciting, it isn't the only thing that brings birders out to brave the cold weather in early mornings each year. It's also the count's scientific importance, the community it builds, and just the love of birds and the great outdoors. At Jordan Lake, I'm Brianna Atkinson. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Charisma Daniel. I'm Sophie Mallinson. And I'm Lorelai Sykes. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.